we are at the end of our travels in the life of Gideon. In fact, chapter 9 will open focusing on one of Gideon's sons, a man by the name of Abimelech. In order to understand kind of why this story is placed in the scriptures and why it's important for a larger uh, story arc pertaining to Israel, you've got to understand, take one step back and kind of recap a bit of Gideon's life. When we're first introduced to Gideon, Gideon is a nobody. Gideon is threshing wheat, not on the hilltop. He's down in the wine press because the Midianites are ravaging the land for seven years. They've been stealing all the produce. They've been robbing the crop. Gideon is not some brave man. He's in a hole and hiding. Now, there is part of Gideon that is gripped by what's happening. Gideon understands the situation. He understands the plight of his people. He understands that God in times past would raise up a deliverer, and he's wondering, God, where are you now? And so what does God do? God comes to Gideon and says, I know these things are on your heart. I'm going to choose you to be the deliverer. Now, Gideon is, is like most of the other judges, the last person you would have picked. Again, he's kind of a coward when we're first introduced. He's in hiding, threshing wheat. Beyond that, he's a, a bit skeptical about the Lord's ability to use him as a deliverer. And kind of the introductory dialogue that Gideon has with the Lord, he, he makes the observation like, I am a nobody. Like I am, I'm kind of like the least of my family tribe and of my family tribe, my family is the least of the families. Like we are trailer trash to, a, to a, you know, pull an analogy. We're nobody. Like Gideon is poor. He's blue collar. He's not the person that you would have just picked out of the crowd to be a deliverer, but God does. And God uses Gideon in an amazing way. Gideon ends up leading Israel into probably one of the greatest military triumphs in history, in all of human history. We talk about the 300 of Sparta against the, you know, the armies of the Persians. They lost. <laughs> Those 300 lost, and they were like big-time warriors, Gideon takes 300 men against 135,000 Midianites. And not only does God give them this great victory, but there are zero casualties on the Israeli side. God takes this nobody, this down and outer, this societal outcast. He raises them up. He clothes them with his spirit. He's like, I'm going to use you. I think you got the wrong guy. It doesn't matter. I'm choosing you. And we see how Gideon in the early days, his faith is developing. We see in the later days, in the midst of this triumph, I mean, Gideon is going full out. He's trusting the Lord. God uses Gideon in an awesome way. He's a hero to Israel. And where we left things off is Gideon, he's had this triumph. He's had this victory. And the people come to Gideon and they're like, we want you to be king. And Gideon's like, whoa, absolutely not. I'm not touching the glory. Let God rule you. I'm not going to. Now, as we noted last week, there was a problem with Gideon. Gideon goes from nothing to this incredible mountaintop triumph to the point that people want to make him king. Now, he knows he can't be king. He can't take the title of king. He points to the Lord. But Gideon then makes a mistake. While he might have refused to be king, in the final years, he acted like a king. He didn't take the title, but he still acted as such. 
And, and Gideon ends up finishing poorly. You know, I've been contemplating this thing of Gideon. How a man that God uses in such incredible ways, who starts with nothing, he ends up incredibly successful. God uses him, anoints him, there's no question about it, but then he falls. Why? How? You know, from a broad standpoint, I, I think you can make the case that one of the contributing factors is that Gideon, at least in chapter 8, you see very little of his interactions with God. You know, if you go, and, and I, I kind of exhorted you guys a few weeks ago, uh, what I've been doing as I'm working my way through Judges is, is I, I like to highlight, underline, jot things down in my Bible. <clears throat> I use a yellow highlighter for most big things, but just for Judges, I've taken a pink highlighter. I don't know why it's pink. It's just, it's what I had. And, and every time God speaks, I'm highlighting the words of God in Judges, just kind of as an exercise to see how often God is speaking, to whom is he speaking. Man, of all of the Judges, I mean, you highlight Gideon, I mean, he's got this crazy dialogue with God. Like to the point that he's actually talking to Jesus at one point face to face, and he's like, I'm gonna die. But then he gets his marching orders. He gets it from the Lord. He whittles the bigger army down to the 300. It's instructions from the Lord. Gideon is getting all of his instructions from God. He is a man of God and communion with God and dialogue with God. And yet you get to chapter eight. Guess what's not highlighted? Not one interaction with God. Even when he's dealing with the Ephraimites and, and the men of Succoth, and whatnot, is he getting instructions from God? Is he talking to God? No, it's almost as though Gideon, after the victory, God goes absent. Now, was God absent? Absolutely not. But Gideon begins to exert himself in his own strength and his own wisdom. He took the victory of God as a stamp of approval that now he could take the lead. The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. You know, it was never the sword of Gideon. It was just the sword of the Lord. And yet you see Gideon, this downfall, as he loses some connection with God. And not only that, he gets very successful. And the success, the money, the wealth, it begins to go to his head. You know what is also absent? Any more battles? No more conquests? It's as though Gideon kind of entered into a retirement. And he's not talking with God. And, and he begins to exert power and influence. And he's got wealth. He has viewed all this as God is God's acceptance. God's blessing, his pleasure. And yet what happens is it destroys his legacy and it destroys his family. And we look at Gideon. And I couldn't help think this morning driving here. I can't use a name, but I'm going to tell a little story. Growing up at Calvary Chapel, Stone Mountain, there was a, a man in our church who came from nothing. And he is like your stereotypical, wonderful, blue-collar, bootstraps, make something of his life type of man. Had nothing, built this company from, from scratch. And God was blessing him. And man, he and his wife and their kids, they were plugged into the church and they were in ministry and they, they contributed. And I know just on the side note that as the business grew, so did their generosity. I mean, thousands of dollars. They were given to the church. And if a project needed to be done, they were at the front of it. And not just that, but they were going on mission trips 
fact, I went with this man to Haiti when I was in college. Came back, I went to Haiti. Haiti's a terrible place. But to see this man who's, who's wealthy and he's, he's, got, he's got it, out in the bush, building churches. Again, just an inspiration. Now, at some point in the trajectory of this man's life, his britches got a little big. I mean, he was making a lot of money. And they decided that, you know, they lived well, but they could live better. And so they ended up making the decision to move. A good hour away from the church, they built this huge house. They were still going to come to church. Now, obviously, their attendance became spottier. And then they kind of got into the country club life and their giving started declining and he kept pushing and the ministry started taking a step back. It's the Ark of Gideon. He kept battling. He kept, he stopped pushing. He got comfortable. Now, I don't think that it's a bad thing to be comfortable as a Christian. I don't think comfort in and of itself is, a, is an evil thing. In fact, our relationship with God, we, we, the, you, the word rest is used often to describe our, like, we have rest in the midst of a warfare, right? Comfort's not a bad thing, but here's what's dangerous. Is it's so easy for comfort to slide you into complacency. And then you have a problem. This gentleman ended up having an affair multiple and his wife left him and his family fell apart and his legacy was tarnished and every one of his kids have suffered because of it this is Gideon God uses him he has nothing but he stops talking to God and he steps away from the fight and his comfort leads to a complacency. Now, now, when Gideon starts, he's married because we're introduced to his firstborn son. So throughout this whole story, Gideon has a wife and he has at least one child we know of because when he finally captures the king of the Midianites and brings them back to his hometown, he wants his firstborn to, to kill the two kings. Now, he doesn't want to because he was a youth, but he's introduced. So Gideon has a family. But then very quickly, he begins living like a king, and he starts amassing a harem. He ends up with 70 sons, and we're told from many wives. We're not even told how many wives. And then we're told, verse 31 of the pre previous chapter, that he has this concubine. So the wives didn't, they weren't enough. He now needs stripper girlfriends in the towns he visits. So he goes to Shechem, he has a concubine, who has another son, whose name he called, Gideon called Abimelech. And I noted that this really indicates where Gideon's at because the name Abimelech means my father is king. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. His family's destroyed. Let's, let's look at it. Then Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, and Jerubbabel is, is Gideon. He went to Shechem. So this is the son. He's got 70 sons. This is the one of the concubine. So he goes to Shechem, which again is where his mother was from. So they're his, his, his kin to his mother's brothers. And he spoke with them 
and with all the family of the house of his mother's father, saying, please speak in the hearing of the men of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbabel reign over you, or that one reign over you. Remember that I am your own flesh and bone. So there's a little bit of, of a succession issue. Gideon is probably off the scene. There's a bit of, of, of the will, the dividing of assets and influence of Gideon. So Abimelech probably being slighted because he's a, he's a half guy, like he's a half brother. So he's got all these other brothers that are probably Jewish. He's the son of, of the whore, the concubine. So he's not going to be really included in the inheritance. He's going to get cut out. He's, he's, he's not part of the group. So there's probably some animosities, a little bit of resentment. He's not, he's not in it. So Gideon dies. They start dividing assets. Abimelech knows he's not going to get anything. And so he goes back to his, the other half of his family. He goes back to Shechem. He's like, hey, they're dividing things up. Who would you rather have the influence over you? The Jews, the pure sons of Gideon, or would you rather me? Because I'm, I'm one of you. So this is the argument that he's making. Appoint me. Coronate me. Let me be, you can trust me. Well, his mother's brothers spoke all these words concerning him in the hearing of the men of Shechem. And their heart was inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, he is our brother. So they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Bareth, with which Abimelech hires worthless and reckless men. And they followed him. So the men of Shechem take the proposal to the council, the group of elders. They're like, hey, here's the dynamic. What do you guys think? And they're like, well, you know what? We would rather Abimelech for the, all the reasons he stated than one of the other sons of Gideon. And so, so yeah, let's, let's back Abimelech. Now to back Abimelech, because he's got nothing. They go to the temple, the pagan temple. They take 70 shekels out. They give it to him. It's kind of a down payment. We're behind you. And with this money, Abimelech goes, and we're told that he hires an entourage. And this entourage can be characterized as a group of worthless and reckless men. Well, then Abimelech, with his new posse, he goes to his father's house at Ophrah, and he kills his brothers, the 70 sons of Jerubbabel, Gideon, on one stone, so there's a public execution. He's got his posse. They come riding into town. Worthless and reckless men you need for such a task. They round up anybody that could be a threat to Abimelech, his brothers. So Gideon goes whoring around. The son of the whore ends up what? Taking all of his brothers, bringing them to one stone, and he beheads each and every one of them. He slaughters them. It's a public execution and bloodbath. There's no one that's going to stand between Abimelech and his thirst for power. What a shame. But we're told Jotham, the youngest son of Gideon, he was left, so he hid himself. So he's able to escape. And all the men of Shechem gathered together, all of Beth Milo, and they went and they made Abimelech king beside the terebinth tree, at the pillar that was in Shechem. It's an interesting place that they go. You can read it on your own, but if you, if you go back to Joshua 24, this was a location, this pillar 
beside the terebinth tree at Shechem was a place that, that Joshua put the law of God, a copy of the word. It, there was a shrine there. We will be governed by God's word. We will be governed by God and his law. This is a, a location. And Abimelech slaughters the rest of his brothers. He's now going to be king over this particular region. And he wants the coronation to happen in a spot, a specific spot, where it wouldn't just be the law of God that would rule over men. It would also be Abimelech. And so they coronate him. So he kills all of his brothers. It's a murderous row. He's now going to be king. There's one that got away, Jotham. Now, when they told Jotham, he went and stood on the top of Mount Gerizim. And he lifted his voice and cried out. Cried out. Now, the, the top of Mount Gerizim, A, this was a natural amphitheater, but this was also a location of meeting. Uh, it's, it's probably likely that Jotham gets an audience of some of the elders of Shechem. He's got a word. Now, how this played out, if everyone could hear or not, or if this was just to a group of people, Jotham, the youngest son of Gideon, escapes. Now, I would have just gone into hiding. But apparently God has given him a word. And so he's going to go and he's going to make a declaration. He's got a freestyle that he's going to drop on Shechem. And so he says, he says, listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went forth to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, should I cease giving my oil with which they honor God and men and go sway over trees? Now, there's going to be a parable uh, that, that Jotham gives here. Uh, you should note for you Bible students that this is the first parable in the scriptures. Uh, it's a unique parable. It's a unique passage of scripture. It's kind of a unique thing that's happened at this point. So he gets to a high place. He's got a word from God, and he's going to articulate this word through a story, a parable. Now, you get to the New Testament, Jesus loved to teach in parables. Uh, parables were a, a creative way to reveal truth and conceal it based upon one's openness to receive it. If you're hardened to God, you're not going to get the story. If you're open to hearing, a truth is communicated. Parable, para, to lay alongside of. It's a story laid alongside of a truth. So Jotham is going to tell this story. It begins with the trees Wanting someone to rule over them, so they go to an olive tree. Will you rule over us? The olive tree's like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm too busy making this oil for the Lord. So they get rejected. Verse 10. Then the tree said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, should I cease my sweetness and my good fruit and go sway over trees? Then the trees said to the vine. So now they've, they've gone from trees to now a vine. They said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, should I cease my new wine, which cheers both God and men, and go to sway over trees? The first, the olive tree, nope. The fig tree, nope. The vine, nope. Verse 14, then all the trees said to the bramble, and if you don't know what a bramble is, it's, it's a bush. Think of a tumbleweed to an extent, for lack of a better illustration. So they come to the bramble, which is pretty worthless. You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, 
If in truth you anoint me as king over you, then come and take shelter in my shade, which he has no shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. So this is the story. Go to the olive tree, rain over us. Nope. Go to the fig tree, rain over us. Nope. Go to the vine, rain over us. Nope. Interestingly enough, three very profitable things. The olive for olive oil, the fig for fruit, the vine for new wine. Reign over us. All three would have been equipped to say yes, but they say no. They reject the, the power, the influence. Why? Well, because God was to reign over Israel. So they say, no, that's not our role. That's not our place. We have a role. We have a place. But the men's hearts so long for a king that they, they go to a worthless thing, a bramble. You reign over us. And the bramble promises shade, promises prosperity. I'll take care of you. Absolutely. So the one particular plant in the sequence that is the last or it's the worthless, it's the most uncapable, is all available and ready. The other's not. So this is the story. Now, the meaning. Now, therefore, if you have acted in truth and sincerity and making Abimelech king, and if you have dealt with Jerubbabel and his house and have done to them as he deserves, for my father fought for you, risked his life, and delivered you out of the hand of Midian. But you have risen up against my father's house this day and killed his 70 sons on one stone and made Abimelech the son of his female servant king over the men of Shechem because he is your brother. If then you've acted in truth and sincerity with Jerubbabel, with his house to this day, then receive in Abimelech, let him also rejoice in you. You can feel the sarcasm, right? But if not, let fire come from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. So, mic drop. And Jotham ran away and fled. And he went to Beer. And dwelt there for fear of Abimelech, his brother. So there's a word of God. And in essence, what Jotham is saying here is he's saying, hey, you guys, you're choosing a worthless bramble to rule over you. And guess what's going to happen? You think this is good. You think this is going to work. You think that this will be beneficial. But because of the character of what you've chosen to rule over you is worthless. Making promises can never, can never make good on. Because you've chosen a worthless man. What's going to happen? And then we get this prophecy. It's prophetic. He says what's going to happen is Abimelech is going to be the end of you. This agreement, you're going to get burned. And vice versa you will be the death of Abimelech. So we have this parable and we have this prophecy. Now, the rest of the chapter tells us what happens. After Abimelech had reigned over Israel three years. Now, pause for a moment. This prophetic word is given. This prophecy is laid forth. A word of God. Again, Jotham, he begins... Listen to me, men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. There's a word of God. There's a warning here. 
You're picking a worthless man. He'll be the destruction of you, and you'll be the destruction of him. This will end poorly. And then God waits three years before he acts. Three years. Again, I have written down next to that just grace. You know, God here gives time for them to listen. He gives time for them to observe. His judgment is not swift. There is a delay in it. You know, when God delays his judgment, you have one of two options in the way that you perceive that. One, he's not going to make good on it. Or two, somehow you've escaped it. You know, it's interesting when you go back to the story of Noah and the judgment that took place then. God comes to Noah after deciding he's grieved he even made man. And he comes to Noah and is like, hey, I'm going to destroy the earth with a flood. I need you to build a boat. It takes 120 years before the boat's done and the judgment comes. In fact, within the genealogy, you run across the name Methuselah. And the name Methuselah literally means, and the day that he dies, it shall come. <laughs> it's prophetic. The implication is that when Methuselah dies, the judgment of God is going to come. Methuselah lives longer than any other human being on earth. Why? Because God was delaying his judgment as long as he could to give man time to wake up and make a change. So the men of Shechem, they've got this prophecy. God waits three years. Verse 23, and then God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt tre treacherously with Abimelech. Now, why did they deal this way? That the crime done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might be settled and their blood laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who uh, aided him in the killing of his brothers. So things begin to sour. They're like, this Abimelech guy's, yeah, he killed his brother. Yeah, he killed his brothers. That's how he's got the power. We've gone through this, guys. So three years, well, what changes here? Well, we're told that God sent a spirit of ill will. This is the only reverence of God in the passage. This is the only intervention of God in the passage. This is the only movement of God in the passage. God says a word. He gives a warning. He takes three years, he waits, and then he decides, nope, it's time. And he gives a contention between these, these, these groups that were aligned. Now there's a spirit of ill will that God has placed in the midst. And the men of Shechem set men in ambush against Abimelech on the tops of the mountains. And they robbed all who passed by them along the way, and it was told Abimelech. Now Gaal, the son of Ebed, came with his brothers and went over to Shechem, and the men of Shechem put their confidence in him. So there's a rival. So they went out into the fields and gathered grapes from the vineyards and trod them and made merry. They all get hammered. And they went into the house of their God, and they ate and drank, and they cursed Abimelech. Alcohol will cause you to say stupid things and, and cause you to think you're more invincible than you really are. Then Gaal, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech? And who is Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbabel and not Zebel, his officer? 
Serve the men of Hamor, the house of Shechem. But why should we serve him? If only this people were under my authority, then I would remove Abimelech. And he said to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. So Gaul gets hammered and he starts running his mouth. You guys went with this Abimelech guy because he's like half you? I'm a full blood. Same logic. I should be the guy. We should get rid of Abimelech. Abimelech, bring your armies out. So he's boasting. He's talking. Then Zebul, an ally of Abimelech, who's the ruler of the city, he hears the words of Gaul the son of Ebed, and his anger was aroused. So he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, take note, Gaal, the son of Ebed, and his brothers have come to Shechem, and they are here fortifying the city against you. Now, therefore, get up by night, you and the people who are with you, and lie in wait in the field. And it shall be as soon as the sun is up in the morning that you shall rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, You may do to them as you find opportunity. So there's an ambush being set up. So Abimelech and all the people who were with him rose by night and lay in wait against Shechem and four companies. And when Gaal, the son of Ebed, went out, stood in the entrance to the city gate, Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from lying in wait. So Gaal, he wakes up, he's got a hangover. He comes out to the city gate, he's got a Bloody Mary in one hand, he's trying to shake off the cobwebs. So Gaal looks and he sees people. And he said to Zebul, look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. Wait, something's going on. But Zebul said to him, ah, you see the shadows of the mountains as if they were men. You still got sleep in your eye, man. You're not seeing what's really going on. Those aren't people, they're shadows. So Gaal spoke again and said, see, the people are coming down from the center of the land and another company is coming from uh, the diviner's terabith tree. Then Zebul said to him, <laughs> where indeed is your mouth now? With which you said, who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despise? Go out, if you will, and fight with them now. So Gaul went out, leading the men of Shechem, fought with Abimelech, and Abimelech chased him, and he fled from him. And many fell wounded to the very entrance of the gate. Then Abimelech dwelt at Arbreth, and Zebul drove out Gaal and his brothers so that they would not dwell in Shechem. And it came to pass on the next day that the people went out into the field and they told Abimelech. So he took his people, divided them into three companies. He lay in wait in the field and he looked and there were the people coming out of the city and he rose against them and attacked them. Then Abimelech and his company that was with him rushed forward and they stood at the entrance of the gate of the city. And the other two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. So Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He took the city and he killed the people who were in it. And he demolished the city and sowed it with salt. So Abimelech and Shechem have an accord, an agreement. I will rule over you. And they back off this agreement. Some men in the city start running their mouth. And does Abimelech deal kindly? Is he even tactful? Is there any politic in his approach? No, he is as heavy-handed 
and iron-fisted as he was in taking control with this rebellion. He kills everyone in the city. He destroys the city, and then he sows salt so that nothing could ever grow there again. Literally, it's a scorched earth policy. Abimelech, indeed, was their destruction. Now, when all the men, verse 46, of the tower of Shechem had heard that, they entered the stronghold of the temple of the god Berith. So those that are remaining, they're retreating back into the city center, the tower, the stronghold. And it was told Abimelech that all the men of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. Then Abimelech went up to the mountain Zalon, he and all the people who were with him, and Abimelech took an axe in his hand, and he cut down a bow from the trees. And he took it, and he laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the people who were with him, what you've seen me do, make haste, and do it as I have done. So each of the people likewise cut down his own bow and followed Abimelech. Put them against the stronghold, the bow, and they set the stronghold on fire above them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem died, about a thousand men and women. So everyone retreats into the tower. Abimelech goes out and he cuts down some kindling. And everyone who's with him, he says, do as I've done. And they go and they stack the kindling around the fire. He lights it on fire and he kills everyone inside it. About a thousand, not just the men of the city, but the women and then in, in the way the Old Testament works, that would include children. This is brutal. A lot of times in this part of the world, you would build towers and structures using limestone. Basically, it didn't burn down on top of the people. He created an oven. And they were roasted alive. Just an, an, a brutal death. Indeed, they got burned. Verse 50. Then Abimelech went to Thebes, and he encamped against Thebes, and he took it. And there was a strong tower in the city. And all the men and the women, all the people of the city, fled there and shut themselves in. And they went up to the top of the tower. So Abimelech's on the march. He comes to the next city. The people go into the tower. So Abimelech came as far as the tower. He fought against it, and he drew near the door of the tower to what? To burn it with fire. Same strategy. Verse 53. But... A certain woman dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. So Abimelech called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to the young man, draw your sword and kill me, lest men say of me, a woman killed me. He has his priorities in line. So the young man thrust him through and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, they departed, every man to his place. Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father by killing his 70 brothers. And all the evil of the men of Shechem, God returned on their own heads, and on them came the curse of Jothan, the son of Jerubbabel. So Abimelech destroys Shechem, and in the process of destroying Shechem, he comes to this tower, repeat of scene. They stack the stuff around the, the tower. He takes the torch, and there's a woman up high looking down, and she has an upper millstone. 
some debate in regards to how big. Uh, think about one of those Cuisinart mixers. About 30, 40 pounds. Heavy enough that getting it out from the, the lower cabinets is kind of a pain in the neck. She's like, well, this is going to end poorly if someone doesn't do something. So she takes her Cuisinart, she leans out the window, and she drops it. And it hits him smack in the head. Now, it doesn't kill him, but it, it's killed him. It's crushed him. I mean, and he's laying there, semi-conscious. He knows he's dying. This is a mortal head wound. And so he cries out. He doesn't want his legacy being that he was killed by a woman dropping a kitchen utensil on his head. So he turns to his armor bearer. You got to do the deed, man. Not knowing that this would all get recorded in Judges, and this would be his story anyway. And so Jotham, the, the prophecy, Abimelech is going to burn you. So you've given him your allegiance. You've given him your loyalty. You've given him your vote. And in the process of it, because he was a bramble, he's going to turn on you. And he will be your destruction. And as for him, well, he's not going to escape it either. There will be judgment. And you will be his destruction. Now, again, like I, like I started, what a wonderfully encouraging Bible story for those with a, a heavy heart this morning. <laughs> Welcome to Calvary 316. Something you can take home with you. If you've upset your wife and she's on the second floor looking out a window with a kitchen utensil, take note. What is the application of this? Well, I think that there's a few really big ones. First and foremost, God's word never returns void. It never returns void. When God says something, it will come to fruition. If God is sending up warning flares, judgment is coming, and you're not listening, guess what will happen? There will be a reckoning. It might be tomorrow. It might be three years. It could be 120. For God is patient. And judgment is the last thing he wants to do. Salvation, he's more in business for. But judgment will come. And they didn't listen. And when it's all said and done, God's word came to fruition. Now, it's interesting because you could have taken a step back, and if you were just reading the story without hearing the first part of it, it, it all seems a little random, right? This weird ancient power struggle, a family of 70, you got the one son, he kills them, he gets power, he takes Shechem, you know, things begin to spoil on it, there's these conflicts, there's an ambush, they, they're infighting, all this seems kind of like random natural stuff taking place in an ancient culture, but we know what? There's nothing random about it at all, is there? For behind it all is the hand and the will of God at work. There's judgment and there's retribution. And you know, when I look at the world around me, it's hard to sometimes make sense of it all. Why this is happening, why that's happening, why God's not doing this and why he's doing that. And we look at it and we're like, I, I, don't, I don't see your fingerprints, but they're there. He is at work sometimes behind the scenes. Well, why did this spoil? 
you know, this agreement between Abimelech and Shechem. Doesn't even seem logical. I just don't understand it. Well, God sent a spirit of ill will. God did it. He put his finger on it. He set things into motion. So God's word doesn't return void. And God, he's providentially in control of even the things that we sometimes have a hard time seeing. And in our own lives, practically, you might be looking at your circumstance and the things going on. And you're like, God, I don't see your hand. Where are you? But he is very much in control. And he's working things to his fruition, to his will, to his purposes. The other thing that I think has an application, and I I, want to be very careful not to get too far with this. But we should be very careful the people we place into authority in our lives. We should be careful the type of men we coronate. Because God will give us what we deserve. You know, they looked at Abimelech as being their savior. And before the end of his first term in office, he brought destruction. You can have an application if you're a Democrat. You can have an application if you're a Republican. You can have an application if you're a, a Democrat or Republican. Doesn't matter. But we should look at the character of the people that we enthrone and put our allegiance behind. Abimelech was a, an evil, wicked man. And they elected him anyway. And they were all destroyed as a result. I also think, what should the people have relied on anyway? Well, they should have relied on the Lord. You see, they already had a king. It was God who was on a throne, not on earth, but in heaven that would rule. And in the place that Abimelech was coronated, there was already a coronation. It was God's word that was to be the authority. That should have been enough. They didn't need a king because they had one. Why did the olive tree say no? Why did the fig tree say no? Why did the vine say no? Because they were like, that's not our role. Interesting that all three are pictures for us of what? The Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit doesn't reign over us. Jesus does. Jesus is the king. But the Holy Spirit helps us in our submission to the king. We have what we need. We have the oil. And we have fruit. And we have new wine. And we have no need for a king or a ruler or anything else to save us or to make our lives better. God has given us everything we need. Holy Spirit's not our king. Jesus is. The Holy Spirit's I can't reign over you. So we have what we need in Christ. I pray that, that, that other applications, the Holy Spirit is able to work out for you. I am struck, and, and we'll, we'll leave with this note, that verse 56 
Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech. Repaid, rendered, literally to return. Again, we noted this past Sunday, the concept of sowing and reaping. No man escapes God's judgment. And when it's all said and done, you have one or two options at your disposal. You have reaped a lot of wickedness. And you can stand before God and you can, you've sowed a lot of wickedness and you can reap it for yourself. You can take the judgment upon yourself. Or you can look to Jesus, who reaps the judgment that you've sown, your sin, your wickedness. Before we close, before we transition, one, one final little nugget. You can think about it on your own. Didn't want to spend too much time with it. This first parable, uh, I, I did read one commentary that, that for those that are really into eschatology and end times things, that there is kind of a picture here. Again, aside from uh, the olive tree, the fig tree, and the vine being a picture of the Holy Spirit, we also find and can build a solid case that those three things are indeed also in this Old Testament context, a picture of Israel. And that the trees, signifying often the nations of the world, that Israel failed, to, to, failed and would fail to take its rightful place to rule over the nations. And as a result, the nations would go after a bramble, the Antichrist. And that it would be in that relationship that there would be a mutually assured destruction. A kind of a fun little thought, throw that out at the end. You can think about it on your own, study that more. Um, but again, for our commentary purposes, wanted to at least throw that out. Father, Lord, thank you for your word.